This is episode 90 of PT Mill Podcast, your weekly-ish serving of conversations on physical therapy and the profession and practices. Um, in today's episode, we are going to talk about the ICU, sedation effects and practices, and the role of physical therapists, according to Kaylee Dayton, an acute care nurse practitioner and the host of Walking Home from the ICU podcast. We talked about the effects of sedation, why it's not as comfortable as we thought it would be for patients. She also discussed long-term effects of sedation, like ICU delirium, ICU dementia, and PTSD. And lastly, she shed light on the importance of the role of uh, physical therapists in the ICU and why we should ask a seat at the table in the ICU team to advocate for our patients' early mobility. I sure enjoyed our conversation and learned a lot from her. Let's listen after the short break. Hey, welcome back to another episode of PT Meal Podcast, the day of play therapies, movement, exercises, activities, and leisure, all packed in a hearty conversation of the, uh, of the physical therapy profession and practice. I am Johan De La Paz, your host. Again, welcome back to the show. So in today's episode, uh, we are joined by Kaylee Dayton, uh, an ICU nurse practitioner and, and ICU consultant. She is the host of the Walking Home from the ICU podcast, where she talks to healthcare professionals and ICU survivors about their experiences in the ICU. So we'll flip the role for a moment and have her share to us her experience in the ICU and what physical therapists can contribute in an ICU patient's uh, recovery. So, so Kaylee, welcome to PT Meal, and I'm excited to uh, what we're going to talk about today. Thanks so much. I'm thrilled to be on your show. All right. So uh, before we really dive into the issues of ICU and, and rehabilitation recovery, could you give us a little introduction to yourself and, and your current practice now? Yeah, um, I'm an ICU nurse practitioner, and when I started my career as a nurse, my very first job was in an ICU and I was clueless and I was so excited to be there. And in this interview, um, they asked me, would you be willing to walk patients on ventilators? And being totally oblivious to what critical care medicine was like, I thought nothing of it. And I said, yes, whatever you want to teach me, I'm in, let's do it. And even years later, I didn't realize how profound that question was and why they asked me in the interview. Um, because when I started working there, it was completely normal to have almost every single patient awake, autonomous, communicative, and walking on the ventilator. And um, it was so normal that no one explained to me why that was done, really how to do it. It was just part of the flow. And we worked so closely with physical therapy Patients would write on the board, I want to get to the chair. What time is physical therapy coming? We'd have them up, ready to hustle. And um, it was just such a fun, normal part of our routine um, to walk patients on the ventilator. And so I call that ICU now the awake and walking ICU. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that that's really what it was. I thought it was just a normal ICU until I left to be a travel nurse after a few years. And someone did mention to me, they said, they said, it's going to be different where you, when you go to a different hospital, I thought, well, I'm, that's what I want. I want to experience different things and travel and go to bigger, better places. But whoa, I had no idea that that's what they meant. I got there and every patient on the ventilator was 
deeply sedated and immobilized. And these were the same kind of patients I was used to taking care of, like the same diagnoses, the same kind of acuities, but everything was different. Lights were down. Um, and then they just looked different. I didn't know who my patients were. And I would ask the team, um, can I get my patient up? Can I take off sedation and like do an assessment? And they'd look at me like I was crazy and say, no, they're intubated. But to me, intubation, being on a ventilator was not a reason to be sedated, let alone immobilized. I'm like, yeah, they have pneumonia, but why, why do we have to dehumanize them like this? But we'd go in these circles and I'd say, okay, but I know they're intubated, but why are they sedated? They say, because they're intubated. And I'd say, why are they sedated? There was just such a huge disconnect. And I never saw physical therapy. Mm-hmm. And I would even ask where, where is physical therapy? And I'd say, dude, your patient's on a ventilator. They're sedated. They're intubated. And it just didn't make sense to me. And I didn't know how to talk to them about it. It was just a completely different environment. And I experienced that everywhere I went for almost two years. And so finally I ran back home to the awake and walking ICU. And um, during grad school, they still did not talk about the effects of immobility and sedation in the ICU. And I was in an acute care doctorate program Mm -hmm. with a lot of fellow ICU um, nurses. Mm -hmm. A lot of us were wanting to go into ICU. And even in our case studies, if a patient gets intubated, boom, they're sedated. And um, that was it. And I was, I would be the only one asking questions. I remember one day I even slammed my hands on the table and said, stop, why are we putting extra medications on extra vasopressors onto this patient to compensate for low blood pressure that sedation caused when they don't need that sedation. Mm-hmm. And everyone would look at me like I was crazy and say, well, no, did you hear in the story, in the case study, they're being intubated and they're on a ventilator. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not a reason to have sedation. So I just found this huge disconnect. And as I walked, worked in the wake and walk and I see you again, I saw how different outcomes were that patients walk out the doors in that ICU, 98% of their survivors discharge home from the hospital. Oh, they compared, they compared that to a neighboring hospital in the same system with the same patients, same Apache scores, and only 46% discharged home from the same community, same system. The difference was the sedation and mobility practices and the role that physical therapy and occupational therapy played in the ICU. And that's learning that kind of data, that kind of research. I realized physical therapy are the shining stars of this ICU. They literally save lives. And that's kind of what got me into doing this podcast and trying to let people know what's possible and what really what can and should be done. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I'll, I'll, you mentioned your podcast. I, I listened to your intro and some of the, the episodes and your intro was really powerful. I mean, uh, you mentioned about the same thing that you mentioned uh, just earlier about uh, people um, getting back on their feet, walking home from ICU, some people experiencing some form of delirium and that that's even as sedated, they are aware of what's going, what's happening around them. So that's a little bit scary for, you know, for, 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 for them, I feel. Yeah, no, it's, um, the reason I'm so panicked mm-hmm. about our current practices, what is mm-hmm. quote normal in the ICU community is because mm-hmm. when patients are in medically induced comas, mm-hmm. when they're given sedation, they're mobilized, they're not sleeping and they're not resting. Mm-hmm. 81% of ICU patients suffer ICU delirium. Mm-hmm. And when I started 
doing the podcast, for example, I had never talked to a survivor of delirium until I was on a plane ride. So I worked in the ICU, I think for almost seven years, had no idea what delirium was like, other than from my side where they're, you know, biting, kicking, trying to pull out their tubes. You know, I saw it from that side, but the man I sat next to, um, asked what I did for a living. I told him I was an ICU nurse and the color just dropped from his face. And he started to tell me about his ICU stay. He was like in his late forties, had no real other comorbidities. Mm -hmm. He had a perforated esophagus from a procedure and developed septic shock. He mentioned he was on a ventilator, briefly mentioned it, but all he wanted to talk about or could try to talk about was being pinned down all four extremities, nailed to the ground in the middle of a forest and trees were falling on him and monsters were coming out of the sky. And um, he was trying to tell me what he experienced, but this was four years after the fact. And he was still clearly too traumatized to even relive or try to explain those, that scenario that he lived those realities to him. Um, and I, I said, well, it sounds like you experienced ICU delirium. He said, no, like it was, it was real. It was real to me. It was. And I, that's when I realized, cause initially I thought this is sounds like a bad dream poor guy. And then mm-hmm. I realized no, this guy is deeply traumatized. And four years later, he had not returned to work. Every time he closed his eyes after discharge, he was brought back into that delirium, relived all of those nightmares, nightmares. I don't even call them nightmares. I call them experiences. He was lost in those scenarios. Again, the sleeplessness, the depression, anxiety sent him into this like psychotic spiral. And he was not himself, ended up divorced still couldn't go back to his career four years later. Um, and I just kept thinking, this isn't what I'm trying to do for patients. This isn't why I became a nurse. I'm not here to psychologically scar people. And I right. thought back to those patients that I had been obligated to sedate during mm-hmm. my, my travel nurse days. And I thought, I don't think my colleagues knew that that's what's going on with patients because they look like they're sleeping. Right. They right. look like they're comfortable. Therefore we on our side of the bed, assume that therefore they are comfortable, Mm -hmm. that we're helping them, that Mm -hmm. no one wants to experience the reality of the um, endotracheal tube. So it's easier. We just make them quote sleep. Mm -hmm. And especially on the nursing side, we do not value muscles. We don't understand what they do for the, like the inter organ um, connections that they have, the value that they have, the vitality that they are for survival. Mm -hmm. And so we have no urgency to move people. We don't really even like now I look at a patient and I'm like, oh, they are, they are losing muscle by the day, by the hour. I'm panicked about it. But as a nurse and even as a normal nurse practitioner did not have that training, did not have that education. That's why physical therapists are important because they're the ones that you, you guys, <laughs> your doctorates, you are, the muscles are your, your focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really concerned that physical therapists don't have enough of a voice that they don't have a seat at the table that they go to the ICU, but they're not in the ICU. Mm-hmm. A lot of protocols in ICUs um, or even just order sets don't have physical therapists going to work with patients um, on ventilators until they're trying to transfer to the ICU or until they're extubated, um, which is crazy to me because I don't understand how patients like COVID patients, how are they going to get extubated if they're not working with physical therapy? Mm-hmm. How do you possibly have a functional diaphragm or respiratory muscles when you've been given medication like sedation that are myotoxic, mm-hmm. that cause diaphragm dysfunction, propofol and Versed 
cause diaphragm dysfunction. So not just in disuse, but we have, we're giving medications that cause muscular atrophy, such as corticosteroids, neuromuscular blockades, sedation, and then we don't touch them, move them for weeks. And we sure. expect them to be able to get up and breathe on their own and protect their airways. Uh-huh. It's crazy to me. And, it, and I know that it's crazy to physical therapists. So they're the ones that need to be saying as well, like everyone needs to sit down. We need to tell you what we can do, why we do it and how we're going to work as a team moving forward. Because right now they have nurses blocking the doorway saying, no, they're too delirious. They're too tired. They're too weak or no, they're intubated or nurses refusing to lower sedation mm-hmm. and physical therapists can't do their jobs. Right. Uh, I think nowadays there's a lot of um, advocacy on, you know, physical therapists doing, you know, a, a critical care and stuff. But before when I was studying, I, I, it was taught to us that, you know, if there's some, if there's a patient going to physical therapy in the ICU, all they can do is PRMs because a lot of attachments, because pe- the patients are in ventilators. So all you can do is PRMs and that's it. But, you know, what you're saying is really that there's a lot to do with patients in the ICU. Um, before we go to, you know, the, 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 physical therapist's role in, 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 you know, um, patients in the ICU, what's the current, you know, ICU culture? If, if a patient goes, you know, to an ICU, what usually happens to them? You know, right now I work with ICU teams as consultants, Mm -hmm. um, talk with a lot of the listeners on the podcast, follow Uh, on social media, but as well, families of ICU patients. mm -hmm. So the current culture fluctuates drastically by team okay so for example i worked in a wake and walk in icu right mm-hmm. and um that was in salt, salt lake city utah mm-hmm. a couple blocks down the road with another hospital where patients do not get any breaks from sedation mm-hmm. um a couple of miles to the left they're walking on ecmo but in that same hospital on another floor they're not getting sedation vacations in an ms icu and miles to the right, um, another hospital, um, they might get sedation vacations, but they're not going to be walking on a ventilator. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it totally depends on the hospital, the team, the culture, um, you know, the awake and walk in ICU come from, they're part of my multi-hospital system. Mm-hmm. They have a COVID ICU. Um, and they're one of, I think five to seven other COVID ICUs in the same system. Their mortality rate is less than half of the other ICUs. So even within the same system, they have the same ventilator protocol, same staffing ratios, same everything. Um, the main difference is their sedation and mobility practices are so different than the rest of the system. And so what's normal depends on the team. So, you know, there's a protocol called the ABCDF bundle, which um, is trying to get our teams to choose sedation appropriately, you know, use it when it's actually, only use it when it's necessary and then only use um, the least harmful sedatives as possible, early mobility, family involvement, you know, it's a great protocol, mm-hmm. but it's also very subjective. And so, um, some teams will, will start benzodiazepines at high rates continuously. And then after two weeks be like, Oh, we should see if they can breathe on their own. That's not really what the ADF bundle is supposed to be, but that's what it's kind of become in some places and other places will say, Let's let them wake up after intubation, see if what they need and keep them moving the whole time. Some ICUs will say, let's start sedation. 
and give some breaks in a few days and see how they're doing and try to mobilize. So there is such a spectrum. So I really don't think there is a norm. I do think that during COVID, we have gone back a few decades, like it's back to the 90s as far as our benzodiazepine paralytic use and immobility. So I think there was more of a spectrum pre-COVID. Now it's pushed a lot of us to go back to these horrific and even lethal practices. So I think the norm is becoming more standardized to heavy sedatives, even benzodiazepines and paralytics and immobility for everyone. And then leading to tracheostomy, PEG, LTAC admission. Mm-hmm. You talked about COVID-19 and is it because um, COVID-19 is, COVID is, is new to everyone that they don't know what to, you know, to expect? That's why they probably went back a little bit on the practices and sedation for those kinds of patients. Yeah, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. There was a mm-hmm. lot of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, the big question was initially, what is this? How mm-hmm. do we treat it? Um, you know, the wake and walk and ICU is a tertiary hospital. It's not a level one, mm-hmm. but it, it, um, it's an MSICU. And yet it was still kind of a respiratory unit because it had the reputation of doing so well for ARDS patients. So they would get a lot of referrals mm-hmm. um, from the command center to have ARDS type of patients come to this unit. So I guess the point is that ARDS was not a new or scary thing mm-hmm. for this team. Um, you know, we, there were some protocols mandated initially, but we all kind of looked at each other and said, you know, we know, you know, we don't, there's a lot we don't know about COVID, but we do know that benzodiazepines increase mortality, diaphragm dysfunction, um, delirium, all the, we know benzodiazepines are bad. Mm-hmm. We know that there is no proven benefit for more than 48 hours of paralytics. Um, we know that mobility saves lives. Um, we're not afraid of walking patients on high ventilator settings. For those ICPTs out there, we walk patients on a PEEP of 18, 100%. That doesn't scare us. So we were not excited about doing things that we knew were harmful just mm-hmm. because it was a different disease process. So that was okay. kind of our thought was, let's do what we know works, helps patients survive mm-hmm. on ventilators. Mm-hmm. But in the community as a whole, it was this... Um, it was new and scary for them to see higher ventilator settings. They were already very comfortable with sedation and paralytics came in. They're like, well, that's even easier. These are stiff lungs. These are sick patients. Um, proning came into play. That was really new and scary for a lot of patients or a lot of teams. So there was a lot of fear-based decision-making that's now been normalized. I, um, there's a lot going on where we have a lot of new nurses coming in that haven't really been trained on how to do the sedation how to wake or mobilize patients. And they learned that alarms turn off when you turn a paralytic on, mm. right? Like, you know, if a pa- when you take off sedation, patients come out agitated because right. they're delirious. Right. Nurses aren't trained, get them up, let them exercise, let them breathe better. You know, they're not trained that way. They're trained oh. to turn sedation that have slid us back into the nineties mm-hmm. on top of now a staffing crisis in which we're True. giving patients delirium and we don't have the staff to safely t- deal with them once they have delirium. So we mask it with sedation. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of factors that are in play in, you know, uh, I guess with advocating early mobility and, and movement to patients in the ICU. So let's. Well, uh, and I have to say with COVID, sorry, one more thing is um, <laughs> at the beginning of COVID, a lot of teams, you know, when we were looking at, uh, we don't have enough. PPE, we don't have enough of this stuff. (laughs) They kicked out physical and occupational therapists out of the ICU. 
mm-hmm. that was so revealing to me of the complete oblivion we're in as to who saves lives and how to really manage and successfully get people extubated. Mm-hmm. When you take out physical and occupational therapists, you are setting people up for death, suffering, mortality. Um, and if they do survive, they have to have trachs and LTAC missions. I just, that blew my mind, but um, I think it's really revealing of the huge disconnect we have and the lack of interdisciplinary collaboration we have. Mm-hmm. And I would just say that you're um, about physical therapists that they're the shining stars in you know, early mobility and, and getting the, the patients up. So for, for you, what are the significant roles of physical therapists in, in the ICU for the, the patients? I mean, who the value, the importance of being able to sit up, hold your head up, walk, um, breathe independently. I didn't understand, um, you know, now we know that sitting up and moving improves lung aeration and secretion mobilization. Didn't understand that that as a nurse, but physical therapists do. Mm -hmm. Um, so they're the ones that are making sure that we're treating that while we're treating these acute processes that we're not creating more chronic problems. Um, they're the ones making sure that once the lungs are healed, that the rest of the body is ready to do the breathing and, the, mm-hmm. and to make sure that they can actually resume their lives. I, I just have learned so much physical therapists, how they, they see, and I know these patients as, as humans. I remember, um, we had a COVID patient that just was pretty despondent, didn't want to do anything. And I saw a physical therapy go in with a bedpan and a cane. And I was like, what are you, what are you doing there? And she's like, we're going to play golf. I learned from the family that he likes to golf. So we're going to golf with a bedpan and a cane. And that's how she got him to stand for like 20 minutes and golf and actually engage. Mm -hmm. They're the cheerleaders. They bring morale. These patients are looking at the same wall for days and they can feel really helpless. I mean, they're just stuck in that room. Their lives are on the line. But when they work with physical therapy, they feel human again. They connect. They feel like they're actually engaging in their care and they're making progress. Um, physical therapy comes in and says, what song do you want to listen to when we walk? You know, they, they bring in so much humanity into the ICU um, that doesn't exist when patients are just sedated, flaccid zombies in the bed. Um, and they're the ones that make it possible for patients, patients to actually get off the ventilator and walk out the doors and resume their lives. And that's the focus that they have that I think the rest of the team doesn't always have because we're you know, we're trying to fix a kidney or a liver or treat an infection, but physical therapists are the ones saying, Hey, you know, this is a human, they have a life to get back to. Let's make sure we give them a life worth living while we're saving them, saving their lives. Right. So how do, how does a a physical therapist work with you and the team in in the IC? How's the dynamics there? Do do the the physical therapists tell you, we're, we're planning to see this patient at this time is this a good time for him to get off sedation or something like that yeah that totally depends on the team and mm-hmm. and you know in this wake walk next you patients aren't sedated oh, so, uh, so um but it is important to coordinate around procedures tests mm-hmm. things that are going on um to facilitate ambulating all of our patients three times a day it takes a lot of collaboration so um, at the beginning of the shift, the nurses have a powwow and they say, okay, so-and-so has an MRI, so-and-so has um, this procedure. They, you know, they coordinate and they say, who's going to go first? Who's going to walk first? A lot of times they, nurses already have their patients up in a chair. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and everyone just kind of jumps in and helps. So that culture makes it so much easier for physical therapy to just come in and get their job done. As a nurse practitioner, um, the physical therapist comes and gives me a report on everyone, mm-hmm. tells me how far they walked, if they saw any changes, they do assessments that my 10 minutes in the room, I wouldn't have noticed these early signs of delirium or questionable stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do a lot of engagement with, with all parts of the team. And I definitely listen to any concern they have, any idea they have. Um, I value their input so much because I know so deeply these, these patients and they're assessing them the whole time. And so they have a close bond with the respiratory therapist and the nurses, and they, they coordinate when they're going to walk, how to make it happen. Um, and, and we think about, I think we think about walking patients on ventilators as requiring like eight people and lifts and this huge effort. The difference is, and you'll, this will be done to you. Um, but not necessarily to nurses all the time is that when you walk a patient a few hours after intubation, they don't become a huge fall risk. Mm. You're not having to like lift them out of bed. They flip themselves out of bed and get up and you're just basically holding the tubes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really not so dangerous or technical. So in the evenings, it's actually the nurses and the respiratory therapists walking the patients, even Uh-oh. when physical therapy isn't there. Okay. Um, but you really see like the intricate skill level when you do have patients coming from an outside facility that have been sedated for a week or two and they still get them up and they, they hustle them even on high ventilator settings. It, that's, I, I just, my jaw always drops. I'm like, how did you get that super weak patient walking 200 feet within the last three days? Like, how did you do that? I mean, that is magic. You guys are experts in this. Um, but it's because they've really built this relationship of trust, education, sharing information, mutual support with each member of their team. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing uh, when this pandemic happened and, and there's a lot of like news articles about ICU physical therapy and there's a lot of pictures of them helping patients stand up with, with all of the attachments and everyone huddled around the patient just helping them stand up i was like that's amazing i mean that's that that's really that the most acute uh, case of a patient that you can handle and you like start there and the, the amazing thing is um yes the equipment everything can be really intimidating at right, first right. i think it's important for systems to have specialized like ICU fellowships and critical care training so that you can do all of those things safely. Mm-hmm. So it's not a big deal. You know, they're not phased by all the hoops and stuff and the high acuity. The amazing thing is, is how much higher acuity is prevented with mobility. Mm-hmm. Um, something that's said in this hospital system is, well, your patients aren't that sick. That's what you can get them up. Well, I mean, they're on maximum ventilator settings. Um, they're in, you know, they're multi-organ failure. Like these are actually sick patients, but the difference is because of physical therapy, we don't make them sicker. Mm-hmm. We don't cause all the other problems. Right. I mean, when muscles atrophy, it's like pouring fuel on an inflammatory process. So COVID's an inflammatory disease. Why would we allow muscles to atrophy and just combust the mm-hmm. situation? Right. So, um, yes, these are patients with high acuity, but the focus is while wow, they're sick, so we better move them because if we don't, they will get sicker. Right. That's the focus that physical therapy brings in. That's what we're really looking at to prevent preventing the, the secondary complications. Now, we, we're, we are we know that atrophy can happen 
a day of not moving could lose at least three percent of muscle uh, muscle strength. So yeah, could you give us um, the 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 whole picture on on sedation and why is it a problem if you know if if patients are you know medically induced coma or heavily sedated or does it have any um, vacation <laughs> sedation vacation? Yeah, what um, happens to them? Yeah, let's talk about propofol, for example. Mm-hmm. Patients were on ventilators were primarily trached. They weren't didn't have the same high acuity as the ones we take care of now usually. Um, but they were trached and they were on ventilators and they were awake and walking and um, human. And then um, in the 90s, we started being able to treat patients with higher acuity. We got better at keeping them alive longer and treating more complex problems, including ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. And so um, those ventilators back then were archaic. They didn't have all the sensors, the finite monitoring. Um, they couldn't sense a patient's breaths and breathe with it. Um, even the tubes were stiff and uncomfortable. And so when you're treating stiff lungs with an archaic ventilator, it's really hard for a patient to synchronize with it, let alone being comfortable. And so they did have to sedate them. Uh-huh. And then they did paralyze them and found it it was easier to oxygenate them with paralytics. That's kind of where the deep sedation started. Mm-hmm. They started using the medications from the OR and realized, wow, they, they look more comfortable and, and they're ventilating better. And this must be a really good thing. Look, they're sleeping. Why, you know, but I'm sure they were like, why weren't we doing this before with all the other patients? Uh-huh. Um, they were using medications like continuous Ativan drips um, and barbiturates and just some really severe medications and um, not unsurprising mortality rates were really high and these were kind of the experimental group. Right. And, but, um, that was in the nineties and in the early two thousands, I started looking back at the few survivors that there were and started noticing one, that a lot of people died and two, that they had a lot of long-term repercussions such as post ICU PTSD, post ICU dementia and physical oh. impairment because, and links back to the sedation and immobility. So then they started looking at benzodiazepines and they said those like, like Ativan, um, midazolam. And they said, wow, those are not good for patients to be on for prolonged periods of time. It, and this is where we realize that it's different than in the OR when they're on it for a few hours, it causes amnesia. They don't remember anything. They, you know, have like a little lapse in time and that's what it's there for. It's a great use for surgeries, procedures, But when it then lasts for days to weeks, Mm -hmm. that is when patients start developing IC delirium, Mm -hmm. which is actually acute brain failure. It is an organ failure. We have caused an organ failure with that sedation, but it's not something you can see. Like when the kidneys get hurt, you can see a creatinine rise, right? Mm -hmm. But when someone's sedated, they look asleep and you're not checking. You don't know if their brain is injured. And so that goes on and on. Um, and so when we don't do sedation vacations, we don't know what they're doing. We can't check them for delirium. Um, but the problem is that delirium causes agitation. Right. So there are two types of delirium. There's hypoactive delirium and there's hyperactive delirium. And what we hate is hyperactive delirium because they come out thrashing, they're trying to pull out the tube. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's hard work, it's dangerous, it's traumatic. 
you can see in their eyes the absolute terror. And the nurses and people on our side of the bed assume that it's the endotracheal tube, that it's the ventilator. They're so uncomfortable. And if we just turn sedation back on, we've fixed the problem. We've, right. we've removed the misery and the terror and it's all gone. But for patients, <laughs> they think there's a snake down their throat. They think their kids are kidnapped or burning in front of them. Mm-hmm. And we finally unmasked it enough for them to be able to move. And they're saying, stop hurting my kids or don't, don't kill me. Don't bury me alive. And then we're like, oh, that looks uncomfortable. And then we just send them right back into it. And we turn sedation back on instead of keeping sedation off, trying to bring them back into reality, clear it all out. We just keep it going on and on. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's hard for them in that moment. That delirium is very damaging. Mm-hmm. And we've seen studies now that that is closely linked to post ICU PTSD, mm-hmm. that it's PTSD is from the delirium because what they lived was so graphic, vivid, horrific, but, and real to them that that, even if they understand later that those weren't real, that emotional trauma has been done and they live with that. They have panic attacks. One survivor I've interviewed, um, didn't have a beard before, but he does now because anytime he gets stressed, he gets into panic attacks, but when he touches his beard, it grounds him back into his post ICU life. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we appreciate in that moment we're making someone quote sleep right. that we're actually setting them up for lifelong psychological distress. Mm-hmm. Um, and that brain injury that we cause that acute brain failure also causes post ICU dementia. So those cognitive impairments are extremely life altering. So concerning amounts of survivors do not return to their careers in large part because they can't um, use executive function. They have mm-hmm. delayed response times. They have impaired memory. They do not, some people can't read a clock. They can't text. They don't have their fine motor skills anymore. And large part, that's why occupational speech therapy are so important in the ICU. Um, but that is extremely life altering as well. And we don't think about that when someone's sedated, we think they're sleeping, but that's right. now that's I'm right. like, wow, I would not want dementia after the ICU. My baseline mm-hmm. is rough enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mm-hmm. need to lose my career, my, all my education because I had sepsis and was on a ventilator for a week. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't think about that. And then these medications. So, um, the Dazlam is something that we are getting really excited about right now in the ICU, which is unfortunate because we know that that increases mortality. It has really high rates of delirium. It also causes diaphragm dysfunction. I'm not sure why, but it directly impairs the diaphragm. A study was done with um, midazolam and the same thing was done with propofol. They took mice and they gave them, you know, in two separate studies. So they gave them midazolam um, and one group was on the ventilator. One group was spontaneously breathing. Mm -hmm. And you'd think that the group on the ventilator would have more diaphragm dysfunction because of the disuse, but rather they had the same amount of diaphragm dysfunction. And the rates of diaphragm dysfunction were more severe in the midazolam group than the propofol group, but the, both of them had diaphragm dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Now, if we look at propofol, propofol increases insulin resistance. So hyperglycemia, it is myotoxic. It disrupts the sodium channels of the muscles. Um, I can't remember what else, but it's, it is directly in, disrupts the muscles as well as the neuromuscular connection. So that's why sedation is such a higher risk of ICU acquired weakness. And it's not just immobility and it's not just 
the other acute, um, acute processes going on, like septic shock and um, corticosteroids that we know uh, facilitate muscular atrophy, mm-hmm. but sedation itself causes it, not just the immobility. This, the, That's why we connect. This early mobility or early like movement, can, can it combat some of the effects of the sedation? Yes, and, and um, in twofold, mm-hmm. um, because you can't do early mobility if you're sedated. Right, so you're gonna wane it off. <laughs> so mm-hmm. if your focus is to mobilize someone, mm-hmm. then you're gonna turn it off, and you're gonna decrease the duration, the dose of mm-hmm. that sedation. Right. Um, and so early mobility substantially decreases ICU acquired weakness. Mm-hmm probably because it avoids sedation and it, it avoids the disuse of immobility mm-hmm. that patients endure. So early mobility drastically changes outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's scary because we we think that the effects of the sedation would be temporary and then you have this long-term effects of, of uh, dementia and, and trauma after that. And we sometimes don't recognize that and we're not aware of it and as you mentioned some some of us would think that the the patients are just peacefully resting while they're in the ICU and you know no harm is being done to them so that's that's really an eye-opener for me listening to the stories in your podcast as well and it there's a psychological there's the mental but Mm -hmm. the physical um what we're seeing a lot I think with a lot with COVID is one, we have patients sit so deeply sedated for so long mm-hmm. that we cause this profound hypoactive delirium, meaning they can take off sedation. And one, it takes a long time for the sedation to clear out. Mm-hmm. So it can be days, weeks to just metabolize out of the body. Even once that sedation is metabolized out, patients aren't waking up mm-hmm. because sedation disrupts sleep and it, it prevents our brains from sleeping. Mm-hmm. So for whatever reason, even once the sedation's gone, they're still delirious mm-hmm. and a hypoactive delirium, um, sometimes for weeks after. So it's not just that you can turn sedation off and get them up. Mm-hmm. You turn sedation off and then you cross your fingers that they're going to wake up depending on how long and what kind of medications they're on. Wow. But you as a physical therapist may not be able to work with them even days to weeks after sedation has been stopped because their brain's too broken. Mm-hmm. And additionally, because of that disruption in the muscles and the neuromuscular connection, especially people who are on paralytics, um, they can develop a critical illness, polyneuromyopathy. Mm-hmm. So even once they're awake, you know, they, you'll see these patients looking around, but they can't lift a finger. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you see it, like, even if they seem to have the mass for it, they don't have the connection for it. So I'm having families reaching out to me saying, Hey, they turned off sedation two weeks ago. And my, my dad still can't move anything. Is he going to be paralyzed the rest of his life? Um, and it's complicated. So how do you rehabilitate someone during that phase? And it takes a long time. And survivors talk about just the painful neuropathy, just, it feels like walking on needles when they're first getting up. And it's so painful for all of that to awaken again, Mm -hmm. after being disconnected for so long. Mm -hmm. Uh, we don't think about that while they're in a coma. Right. That's hard because, as you mentioned, 
nurses and other healthcare professionals aren't there we're there to have the patient but they they live after yeah. that, that that event but experience this much uh pain this much anxiety and, and trauma afterwards that some of them as you mentioned as well that they don't get fully back to where they they were before that icu event and i there was a um, episode i think in your podcast when the this the icu survivor said that um in case you know he has a, an event again he doesn't want to be uh admitted in the icu again he doesn't want to be intubated again or something like that so that's really saying something about the trauma that that, that person experienced he said no matter how preventable or curable it is uh-huh. i would rather die yeah and go back to yeah. what he what he was describing was the delirium he didn't he couldn't survive the delirium again mm-hmm. and i've had others i i mean i and read a survivor who's a physiotherapist in the uk worked in the icu for years very comfortable to icu he had septic shock he was deeply sedated and he said anywhere is better than where i was when i was sedated mm-hmm. i would rather live in an icu as a patient than ever go back to i mean he saw his siblings being dismembered graphically in front of him on replay mm-hmm. amongst many things he was he was very articulate and I was, it was viewer discretion advice, but it was amazing to see, get a glimpse into what he endured. And so after hearing stories like his and many others, I've sort of interviewed at least a dozen survivors that echo what you hear in any survivor group, you will never look at a patient that's sedated and say that they're sleeping. That's yeah, that's, I mean, that's hard for, for anyone just hearing those stories. I could imagine that the horror they might have felt, the terror that they may have felt, you know, being unable to move, unable to express what they're feeling. Some of them are awake, right? Like, but they can't express anything to the outside, to the outside world. Um, yeah, I mean, when they've been sedated and then they're mm-hmm. coming out of sedation, but they're uh-huh. still delirious, uh-huh. I think uh-huh. that's a really difficult phase for everyone because. Mm-hmm. You know, these survivors, they have questions like, where am I or where are my kids or who did I kill? Mm-hmm. One guy thought he had committed homicide and he was about to be imprisoned. Uh-huh. And he was asking his wife, what happened? And she said, you're in the ICU. And he's like, what happened? But he really meant like, how did I kill someone? Who, who did I kill? But because he had a tracheostomy and there was no, no one gave him a communication board. We have good apps like beat attack, things that we can use for communication that wasn't offered him. And it wasn't until he was zooming with his wife and she could kind of read his lips that she realized that he didn't, even though he may have answered questions appropriately, squeezed hands, followed commands, he still was not back. Mm. And so that's a really scary phase for them where they can't communicate uh, and they can't necessarily move. He was extremely weak. They're locked into their body. So even survivors that didn't have horrific experiences under sedation, didn't have that kind of ICU delirium, still have some PTSD because of coming out of sedation and not being able to lift a finger completely mm-hmm. locked into their body, having no autonomy, um, no say in their care and, and no, really no dignity, but just a scary feeling of not being able to even scratch your nose mm-hmm. or, or click a TV remote. Mm-hmm. Let me see. Well, you were, well, we were talking about delirium and you also mentioned earlier the, um, the, 
muscle consequences on, on muscle connections and, and, and neuromuscular connections and the weakness of the muscles. I can't remember a patient that I, I'm that I had like he came out of ICU and we he he's right um, even after days of you know being outside the ICU he still has moments of that oh where am I am I in this hospital or then, then after like 10 minutes of conversation then we, he gets back to reality and I was like so while we're talking so I was thinking so can that be like a long-term effect of staying in the ICU as well so oh absolutely I, I, and that's a long-term effect of, of delirium uh-huh. yeah that's that's a cognitive impairment that's um, I'm sure a mix between the post-ICU dementia and mm-hmm. the post-ICU PTSD this man with a beard that I mentioned he was an attorney beforehand he tried to go back to work as an attorney but when he'd step into the courtroom he'd get lost. Like he would be back in the ICU as well as his delirium. Mm -hmm. He would forget where he was at. And that's when he realized he can't practice as an attorney if he doesn't even know where he's at sometimes. It's extremely debilitating and, and a huge burden to live with. Mm -hmm. I mean, we think about war veterans, right? right? And we are so cautious with them avoiding triggering. We try to be understanding that they get sucked back into those scenarios that they lived mm-hmm. it is the same thing for icu survivors and doubly worse if they had a baseline ptsd then we're in a medically induced coma where they relived that ptsd but now have new cognitive impairments so now they can't cope with their old and new trauma it's and that's why there's up. a concerning rate of suicide in um icu survivors oh wow <laughs> Wow, I mean that's that's an eye opener for everyone, I guess. I mean, even for me, I've learned a lot listening to you right now and and your podcast and what us uh, healthcare professionals can do and how we can work together in uh, you know helping these patients avoid those types of trauma, those stress, those experiences, and help really help them. At, at day one probably or as soon as they're safe to be you know be moved or uh you know get up from from the bed um so what would be your um you know what do you want to express to the the listeners of the show um mostly physical therapists about what we, everyone in the ICU team can do for, for patients in the ICU. I am desperate for physical therapists to know mm-hmm. how vital they are in saving lives in the ICU mm-hmm. and then giving patients lives worth living. Mm-hmm. Um, I think every hospital system has a different utilization, different staffing of physical therapists. And I think it's time for physical therapists to demand to be full-time in the ICU. Mm-hmm. Not just is in the ICU, popping in and out. You are part of the ICU. I think you'd be part of rounds. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a right to ask and educate about sedation. Um, if your team is deeply sedating every patient on a ventilator, as an ICU team member, you have a right to ask, mm-hmm. why is this patient sedated? And if they say because they're intubated, you have my permission to slap <laughs> <laughs> and, but, or to just 
tactfully ask, okay, but is being intubated on mechanical ventilation an evidence-based indicator for sedation? Mm-hmm. And you contact me and I will give you all the evidence because <laughs> early mobility while intubated is safe and feasible in the ICU during acute respiratory failure. Mm-hmm. You cannot convince me otherwise, <laughs> but it can be your job and your mission to convince the rest of your team. Right. Um, I have physical therapists pulling me in for webinars. I do multidisciplinary webinars. I want everyone sitting there at Zoom listening to this information because until everyone's on the same page and informed of this, you guys can't do your job, mm-hmm. but you have every right and an obligation to share the information you have. It's important that the whole team understands your role on the, in the ICU. There's lots of silly stuff going on thinking that physical therapists are just there to move flaccid limbs. You didn't get your doctorate for that. Like <laughs> the family member can do that. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. there to get them alive and functional. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't do that if we don't work together to overcome these sedation practices So, um, educate people on your role, advocate, ask, you have your doctorates, you know how to understand and apply the research, ask for the evidence. Don't Mm. just say, okay, well, that's just what they do here. That's not good enough. (laughs) Say why, why do they need to be sedated? Why can't they move? Um, you might not be everyone's favorite, but you're going to be a hero (laughs) if you do those things. Um, pull everyone together and, and talk about what your role should be on, on the ICU team. How can you collaborate better with nursing, RTs, OTs, everyone to move these things forward, be leaders. You have every right to be leaders. Um, if your staffing ratios aren't adequate, again, bring the evidence. Early mobility saves hospital systems money substantially. Mm-hmm. Use the research to, um, as leverage to make sure that you have good staffing ratios, that you have that presence, that you hire more if needed. Um, and then, so that's a role in the ICU. You should be there. There should be PT and OT orders upon admission for almost every single patient in the ICU. None of this, once they're extubated or 30 days later, you're not the cleanup crew. You are the saviors. You prevent Actually. the harm. Okay. And so be confident in that. And don't be afraid to say it. If you're afraid to say it, then again, bring me in for webinars. I don't mind saying it. I'm a good hitman. They can hate me. They can throw whatever at the screen and I peace out. I will say the hard things because I believe in you guys. And then on the other side of the ICU, you guys are the ones that keep them out of the ICU. You're the ones that get them their lives back. Even if patients are mobilized during the ICU, as you know, they have a long ways to go before getting back to their lives. Um, understand their delirium, be compassionate, let them talk about it, educate them on it. Cause a lot of patients don't even know what they've experienced. They won't talk about it. They're scared to, mm-hmm. they think like one guy thought he was going to be institutionalized. If he told people what he had and was still experiencing because it sounded so crazy or it's too traumatic, educate families on it, make sure that they get resources to trauma therapists and have support after that psychologically, emotionally, um, if they're having cognitive impairments, get them OT, um, speech, see the big picture, understand what, what they've been through and help be the one that connects it all together. And then just hustle them because the longer they stay weak, the more likely they are to end up back in the ICU being put back onto that conveyor belt and have even worse outcomes the next time. Right. Right. Um, like for, for me, like like right now, listening to you, I, I feel like I am listening to you know a, a lecture because this is really new to me, and I, I love it. This is new information. 
for me. I know that, you know, mobility really helps, early mobility helps, but coming from someone who's really experiencing it, it's really, an, it's, it's a different perspective. It's an eye opener for me. So um, again, I mean, we can talk a lot more because there's a lot of, you know, uh, things or issues uh, surrounding. I mean, I have a hundred episodes on that. I know. Like, <laughs> I can go on and on. You got to go off Right. <laughs> so, but thank you again for, you know, sharing this much information. I mean, I, I think our, my listeners, the podcast listener would get a lot of from that. And, um, but if, if they want to reach out to you, where, where can they, you know, uh, social media or, or, you know, you have your podcast as well. Yeah, social media, it's walking home from the ICU, but there's also my website, which is www.daytoniceuconsulting.com. And there's a link for email there as well. All right. So we're going to post that in the show notes. So, but before I let you go, I have my last three bites of uh, questions, just quick questions. It's not about ICU now, but just about you. Um, So, yeah. So my first uh, last bite is... uh, What's your recipe for success? I think having a personal mission, just mm-hmm. filling your personal calling um, can give you confidence and drive to do whatever you're meant to do. For example, starting this podcast, that was, I thought that would be career suicide. Um, I felt like I was speaking out against the medical community because um, I kind of am, you know, mm-hmm. I, it, really it's in support, but it can be seen otherwise, mm-hmm. exposing some really hard realities Mm -hmm. and that was scary to me and yet it felt like the right thing to do and that's what drives me and I hope I hope I'm headed towards success in that so knowing that you're in the right place the right time doing what you're called to do and born to do um keeps you going into that path of success right right and and thank you for you know making that that podcast because now i mean now it's it's being broadcasted about the realities of people experiencing you know inside the icu it's not just people you know they're not just sleeping they're they're experiencing terrible things some cannot you know get back to their you know uh, former selves so yeah i acknowledge you for that and thank you for sharing that to to everyone so um, my second question is, what ha- what's something that you have learned recently that's good enough to share to our audience? I, I think I've repeatedly learned that even though something is right and you're calling, it's still fetching hard. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's been repeatedly reaffirmed. And just because things are hard, it doesn't mean that they're impossible. and doesn't mean that they're not right. Sometimes the most important and the most correct things that you'll ever do in your life are going to be the hardest. And that's been a lesson I've repeatedly learned. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's a good one. And lastly, what are the three ingredients? It can be a motto, a principle, a characteristic, a virtue that you carry with you every day that you think are essential or in short, what are the three things that make up Kaylee Dayton? That I have or that I'm trying to have? <laughs> that you have, that you're trying, striving to have? or you believe in three virtues that I, I need and I'm trying to have, and I don't totally have perfected is probably perseverance, mm-hmm. patience, and passion. All peace, patience, perseverance, and passion. I like that. All right. So you've already told us earlier what the, what physical therapists can do, you know, for the ICU, but 
as a takeaway, something that uh, the audience can wrap in their to-go boxes and bring to their work. What is that something that they can take away from our conversation to, today? Physical therapists save lives in the ICU. Mobility is a life-saving intervention. Refusing mobility is like refusing a life-saving antibiotic. It's not an option. If you're, we want to do evidence-based practice medicine, then we're going to get in there and hustle patients. I love that. I love that. Thank you again, Katie, Katie for, for being in the show. And thank you for you know sharing your wisdom and your experiences with us. It's been an honor. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to PT Meal Podcast. If you like the show and want to support it, please follow the podcast's social media accounts in Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Share the episodes you're listening to or episodes you love to listen to so that the message can reach more people. Also, if you have anything to share with everyone about the profession or your practice, do contact me and we can work something out. If you have any suggestions, feedbacks, questions about the show or the guests uh, of the show, you can reach me through all the podcast social media accounts or through the website www.ptmealpodcast.com or through email at ptmealpodcast at gmail.com. All right. Looking forward to hearing from you. Thanks. Just a reminder, folks, the podcast is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The show strives to keep all information true and correct, but humans sometimes make mistakes. Factual errors may be present, so we encourage the listeners to do their own research on the featured topics as well. Now, let's go back to the show.